Welcome to the Business Spotlight Series. My name is Nate Woods. I'm a senior partner here at Action Coach Peachtree. Uh, today, I have Chris Graham. He's the founder, CEO, and CIO of Crown Capital Investments. Uh, so today, we're going to talk a little bit about his business, his journey through business ownership, some of the challenges that they face, best practices they've implemented, and what it's like to really own and operate your own business. So uh, if it's your first time here on the channel, make sure to like and subscribe. You'll get notifications when we drop new interviews just like this one. Chris, Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, so please just give me a little bit of your background and tell me a little bit about your business. Sure. I uh, started as a tax attorney uh, and CPA at a big five uh, CPA firm and worked with family offices for about 27 years. Um, and then out of that, those family offices grew to backing me and acquiring businesses on their behalf and running those businesses. And that developed into Crown Capital as a, as a fund investment platform. So we run a PE investment platform. It's a buyout fund. So we acquire companies in full, and then we run those companies on behalf of our investors. Awesome. Awesome. So generally speaking, what, what does the ownership of the fund look like now? Um, are you the sole founder and owner, or are there other outside investors specifically in the fund? So our fund is about uh, um, close to $200 million in valuation, about $120 million invested capital. And um, we have about 30 investors. Um, Crown Capital itself owns about 30% of the fund, 25, 30% of the fund, and the rest are spread among several family offices, um, some smaller families, and then uh, a handful of big families that invest behind us. Awesome. Love it. So tell me a little bit about uh, the role that you currently play in the business. So I'm CEO. We have a team here at Crown Capital at the fund level, 15 people. We're growing pretty steadily. We're looking to raise more capital and acquire more companies. And so I'm CEO, kind of uh, um, run that team, uh, as well as uh, chief investment officer. So I decide um, what companies we're going to invest in and, and, and when we acquire those companies, kind of manage the cash flow of the whole organization. So being a buyout fund, it runs a lot like a holding company. And we've acquired 12 companies within that holding company. We've now consolidated those 12 companies onto what we call nine reporting platforms. That's kind of the, the structure. So I run that whole organization. Great, great. So uh, you've had a lot of unique experiences with different businesses along the way. Um, if you had to go back and start over from square one, what is one thing you would do differently? Do differently. Uh, you know, somebody asked me the question, if I had to uh, give advice to my younger self, what would I what would I say, um, which I think is a great way to, to look at it. Um, and my answer there, I think, still holds true. I would uh, tell myself to think bigger, quicker. Um, that was uh, kind of what stuck out to me. You know, a lot of times we're um, plodding along and have big designs and um, kind of are maybe are a little too structured in the way we approach things. And so maybe thinking bigger, quicker, and and, uh, and reaching a little further sooner. Love it. Love it. So what are some common misconceptions that you see people have about running a business? And then how are you able to address them with your leadership team? Oh, that's a great question. So I, we, we have a very strict operations system. And I can, you know, kind of maybe if it helps somebody kind of coach a little bit on it now. I mean, um, what we find is that we acquire these companies. These companies are typically long lasting companies. They've been around for a while, 10 years or more. Uh, many of them are founder um, led and founder uh, run today. And we're buying out those founders. And what we find is companies are, are actually really bad at managing their cost of goods sold and gross margins. They're really bad at it. They will um, chase revenue instead of chasing profit. 
Um, I rarely find a founder-led company that has appropriately priced their their product. Um, so that ties into two things. You know, one of our one of our kind of themes is gross margin, gross margin, gross margin. Right, set your gross margin, but also calculate it correctly. So when we calculate gross margin, we look at um, expenses that correlate closely with revenue. Doesn't matter what you call them. You can call if it's uh, if this if an item's called sales or called rent. If that item correlates closely with revenue, it's still cost of goods sold. A lot of people just put in the the physical materials or direct labor costs. But what you'll find is if you do a real analysis, a lot of other expenses actually correlate to revenue. And getting that gross margin right is kind of like task number one. Absolutely. There was a unique quote that I came across. Um, said, uh, "Revenue is vanity, but profit is sanity." So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's amazing how many business owners live by that. <laughs> yeah, they'll chase pro chase revenue, and it's really crazy. Like, uh, they'll say, "Well, look at how much I grew the revenue." We had one one of our our portfolio companies, and she, she's a great leader in a certain way. She's great at growing revenue. She grew our revenue from nine million to twenty two million in about fifteen months. Wow. Now that's an incredible pace, but I kept telling her to slow down and I don't think she got, why would I slow down? Um, there's no way you can keep up with the systems and processes to grow that quickly to more than double in that short of a period of time. And what I predicted, what would happen, happened. She broke the company, broke it inside. And now we're inside trying to fix it and fix the processes to accommodate the new growth. But she was chasing revenue, not chasing profit. And I told her, look, I'd much rather do 5 million gross and do 2.5 net and do 22 million gross and 200,000 net. <laughs> you know, it's all about the profit. Don't chase revenue. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you guys have obviously been very successful. What do you attribute some of that growth to? We have a very specific math-driven kind of brick-by-brick brick process and methodology and investment strategy and investment thesis. So um, I find that in our space and in, in the private equity kind of fund world, most um, – platforms raise money and then throw money at deals, right? They throw debt and equity at deals. Um, we weren't built that way. We actually had an investment thesis, had a model, had an operational bandwidth, and then we raised money around specific deals that fit our targets. So I think that's been one of the keys to our success is that, uh, um, and our ability to scale and grow quickly is we're very focused on a very tight range of companies that respond very well to our system. I love that. It leads me right into my next question. So what criteria are you looking for in a company before you make an acquisition? Yeah, that's a great question. So we we run what we call an anti-fragile value investing platform. So uh, value investing, you know, with Warren Buffett kind of classic, buy good companies at good uh, prices. Part of that means um, double-digit net margins. This ties back into gross margins. So double-digit net margin companies is one of the things we're looking for. Because double-digit net margins indicates pricing power in the market. It indicates something that's not commoditized. So when the markets tell you what your price is, we do we don't do as well with those companies. <clears throat> for us, we need to tell the market what we're really what we're we need to charge, right? So, for example, healthcare and insurance. Well, the insurance company tells you what you can charge for a procedure. That's not really our space. Or shipping, shipping container prices are dictated to you by the market. 
you don't get to tell the market what you're willing to charge because it's so commoditized. Those are not really our spaces. So double digit net margins is an indicator that you control your pricing. That's a, a good kind of simple example. And of course, that ties back into gross margins. It allows us to set our gross margins and then leads us to more profitable um, operations. So that's the value portion. Um, there's a couple other parameters on that uh, size of companies we look for. But then on the anti-fragile portion, we look for two things. There's a math equation. This is going to be a little geeky for everybody, but um, there's a math equation called the Lindy effect. And Nassim Tlaib writes about this in his book, Anti-Fragile. Um, and it's kind of an ancient math principle that was rediscovered on Broadway. So Lindy is a Lindy's Deli on Broadway. They have this famous cheesecake and the directors and, uh, and uh, producers on these plays on Broadway would go out to eat cheesecake after these plays and they would bet each other on the future um, longevity of current plays on Broadway. And they found that they would win 100% of the time if they bet on a longevity that was up to and even equal to the current existence on Broadway. So if a play had been on for three years, they were highly confident it would last another three years. Richard Gott in the 90s calculated the um, probability of future life expectancy based on past life existence as 95% certain. And in a complex organization, something that's been around for five years has a 95% uh, probability of being around for another five years. So we lean into that anti-fragile structuring um, by looking for companies that are 10 years old or older. Um, and with that, behind us, it kind of solves for a lot of unknown unknowns, right? If the company's been around, you know that it has employees it can pull from, from its employee pool. It has a facility that can produce what it makes profitably. This has lasted 10 years. It has customers that will buy what it makes profitably. It has inputs from vendors that it can acquire profitably. So um, all those unknowns that you could never solve through effective due diligence are kind of solved for you just by the fact of its mere existence. So we lean into that anti-fragile concept. I love that. I love that. That's kind of like identifying, uh, Chris, Chris Wallace calls it the black swan, you know, what, what you yeah. don't know about in the business. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah it's a Nassim Tlaib uh, um, uh, concept as well. He wrote a book, Black Swan. That's where that term okay. comes from. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm a big Nassim Tlaib kind of fan and, and probability theory and probability um, projection is really, as a CIO, one of my main, um, I guess, functions, both risk mitigation and probability of outcomes. Awesome. So continuing to develop your skills is obviously very important to you. What's a great book that you're reading now or have read recently? Uh, so I read uh, a ton. Um, I read two great books recently uh, in the last three weeks. Um, I'm finishing up one now called The Biggest Bluff. And it's about it's a true story of a reporter that goes on this journey to compete in the World Series of Poker. Um, and uh, it's really not about poker. It's really about probability and um, variability and managing your biases and, and uh, managing. You know, there's this this old bias that if you flip a coin ten times, it comes up heads each time. In your mind, you think the probability it comes up tails skyrockets. But probability doesn't care about what you think. <laughs> probability is the same each time you flip the coin. So a gambler's bias or you know, the gambler's fallacy is that you, you know, I've got to get lucky now. Well, probability doesn't 
that up that way. Each time is unique. And so um, it's a great reminder, but also a great, a great educator of all those things in this book. And the other one's called The Uncertainty Solution, which is a great uh, kind of market um, data book and market philosophy book as well. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, obviously a very busy man. How do you balance your personal life with the demands of running multiple businesses, really? Probably trained uh, in, a, in a harsh environment. So when I was a lawyer, I was a lawyer for, again, for 27 years. And for the last seven to eight years of that uh, career path, it was overlapping with private equity. So I was doing two things, um, you know, both of those things at the same time. But the path of a lawyer is brutal brutal. I was working from, you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning till nine, 10 at night, six days a week. And then partially on Sunday, like it was, it is a, a travel 180 days a year. Um, it is a brutal existence. And so I kind of <laughs> train myself to be very tolerable. I have a very high pain tolerance um, by comparison. Uh, and people will tell you this, right. Um, don't constantly run, be more like a lion, like wait for your opportunities and then, and then sprint. Well, private equity is a little bit more like that because you get really, really busy at times when you're pursuing or closing or due diligence a deal. But then in between, you can kind of study and learn and read the markets and do a little bit more kind of a hone the, the skill set, sharpen the saw. I love it. That's that's a great analogy with the lion. I'm going to have to yeah. steal that. <laughs> that's much more effective this way. Uh, you know, when you're in a treadmill in a professional service practice, it's just running nonstop. And so that was great training, but it was not an unsustainable kind of path. Absolutely. So obviously you have a great team in place. Um, what are some things that you look for when hiring team members? And then secondly, how do you foster a, a great team environment? So I would tell you, I suck at hiring people. <laughs> I got lucky a couple times. And what we have discovered is uh, don't let Chris hire people. That's what we've figured out. So I have some great people that, um, again, they kind of fell in my lap. One of my uh, right arm people is uh, was an intern, an unpaid intern for me, um, you know, about five years ago. And we have learned over time that I shortcut hiring Um because I throw people and, and I figured out a model where I just throw people in the mix. If it lasts great. If it doesn't last, we cut ties pretty quickly. So we'll give them like a three month leeway mm -hmm. that has evolved into me not being really involved in those processes. So the team I have is great. And, um, but I am good on the other side, which is kind of building a team environment and really pulling people close and having us all grow in the same direction that I'm good at. So I focus on that and the probability and investment strategy, investment thesis, company operations, but uh, hiring is kind of not my gig. <laughs> Fair enough. Outsource it to somebody who enjoys it, right? <laughs> yeah. Do the things you're good at. You know, somebody asked me the other day this about uh, in school about my son. They said, don't you want your son to be well-rounded? My son's my middle son is nine. And I thought to myself, I'm probably not well-rounded. And in fact, I don't know anybody successful who is well-rounded. I mean, is Elon Musk well-rounded? Is Bill Gates well-rounded? So I, thought, I don't know that that's what I want for my son. I, we're probably, the, some of the best performers I know are very asymmetrical in development. They're really good at a few things or a handful of things and then kind of not interested or not good at these other things. Well, don't, the, the effort you have to put in to become good at the things that you're weak in is uh, tremendous. Instead, just put more effort into being really good at the things you're really good at. You'll get much greater return on your investment in the things that you're passionate about and interested in than you will by diving in on things you're bad at. 
right? And kind of, I don't care if I'm good at hiring, you know? Absolutely. Difference of being a generalist versus a specialist, right? Yeah, yeah. Dig into the things that you're really good at and then make those things like something that you're uniquely qualified to do. Yeah, love it. So before I get to my final question of the day, uh, how can others learn more about you or about the company? What's the best way to get in touch? So Crown Capital uh, is, is Crown Capital Investments is the platform. Crown-inv.com certainly is our um, our website. But the truth is, we don't have much uh, much um, kind of branding at the crown level. Uh, there's just not a lot of need for it. Um, but you can see what kind of companies we own on Crown-inv.com, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. I have uh, um, I, I put a lot of economic data on LinkedIn and kind of track our companies on on that platform as well. Awesome. Great. So my last question, what most inspires you as you continue to move forward with the business today? I think I love uh, uh, grappling with complex problems. I love it. And the more we grow, the more complexity there is. Um, and I love kind of trying to sort through that and find a path through to optimization. I want to be optimized on all levels. And so um, that's what really drives me is this continuing both self and organizational improvement towards uh, optimization. Love it. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to hear about you and about Crown Capital. Thank you again for so much for joining us. Thank you.